Hello there, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call. Did you miss me? Because, man, did I miss you. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and, of course, the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash Ow, how good it is, Pod. Let me give a quick shout-out to Greg Yates over at No Head Trash Nation. Uh, that's his podcast, and uh, he, 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 he's one of those guys who specializes in helping you to declutter your head and, and move forward, and he gave me a little bit of a boost this past week that, that got me back into the game here, uh, over, over here at howgooditis.com. Okay, so... Go check out Greg Yates, No Head Trash Nation. He's got a pretty cool podcast, and, and, and his shows are easily consumable, kind of like this one. A lot of them are short, okay? Good stuff. Greg Yates, okay? Before I do this week's trivia question, I do have to address something from episode 90's trivia question, okay? So last time around, the uh, trivia question was about why Peter and Gordon didn't sing World Without Love when they made their debut on the Ed Sullivan Show. And my answer was correct, but one of the details was wrong. The song that they sang instead of World Without Love was titled, I Don't Want to See You Again. And and somehow I got it in my head that the song's title was, I Don't Want to See You Anymore. And, and somehow, somehow I got it so locked into my head that at one point I actually said the right title and corrected myself to the wrong one. And, and coincidentally, when I played episode 90 in my car, when the show was over, I switched to Sirius XM 60s channel, and a few minutes later, I don't want to see you again, come on. And I realized not only that I'd screwed up, but just how badly I'd screwed up. So, my apologies if you were confused by that mistake. All right, onward to this week's trivia question, and I'm asking this one in honor of the fact that I'm going up to Boston this week, and it's also for a podcasting event. And I'm going to leave the setup purposely vague, so here it is. What do Babe Ruth... And the song T for Two, which you've been listening to for a couple minutes now already, have in common. And yes, Boston is, in fact, a hint. As usual, I'll have the rather surprising answer for you later in the show. What does Babe Ruth have in common with the song T for Two? So when it comes to covers, it almost always surprises me when I discover that a song I really like turns out to be a cover. So early in the, in the life of this show, I started taking notes in order to have a bank of songs to draw from for shows like this one. And while I know I did a stealth cover show just a few episodes ago, I was cleaning out my uh, computer bag a couple of weeks ago, and I discovered a really old list of uh, cover songs that I had compiled going almost back to the first time I did this kind of show. And when I realized that I haven't even discussed most of those songs, I took that as a sign that I need to come back to the well once again. Now, some of these songs have kind of an old feel, for lack of a better term there. So it's not as surprising when you learn that they're, in fact, older than you think. But it's still a little bit of a surprise regardless. You know what I mean? Here's one from the Not A Big Surprise column, at least in my head. It's All Over Now was the Rolling Stones' first number one hit in the UK, although it only made it to number 26 in the United States. But did you know that it was a cover? Her, 
song was written by Bobby Womack and his sister-in-law, Shirley Womack, and recorded by this group, the Valentinos, in 1964. That version peaked at number 94 on the Hot 100. City disc jockey Murray Kaufman, known to most people as Murray the K, had a series of interviews with the Rolling Stones during that first U.S. tour, which aired on his Swingin' Soiree show on WINS Radio. And during one of those shows, he played this record, the Valentino's song, It's All Over Now, for the Rolling Stones, and the Stones really liked it. So just a little over a week later, the Rolling Stones recorded the song in Chicago after Sam Cooke talked Bobby Womack into letting them record it. Which means, if I've done my math correctly, that the Rolling Stones recorded It's All Over Now around the same time they began working on Satisfaction, which Mick Jagger had just written a couple of days earlier, which you might recall from episode 35 of this show. Now, now given that the Stones were still largely known as a blues band who played a lot of covers, in retrospect, this shouldn't have been much of a surprise, but I have to agree with Bill Wyman's assessment that the unintentionally country feel that the Stones version has comes from the 12-string guitar and the harmonies in the chorus. Now, most people know this song, Love Hurts, as a power ballad by the group Nazareth from 1975. I was about 12 years old at the time, so I was pretty deeply into the top 20. So, as far as I knew, this was the one and only definitive version. It was a huge hit that you heard throughout the winter that year, finally peaked at uh, number 8 in early 1976. But it was also a big international hit, reaching number 1 in several countries. It only topped out at number 15 in the UK, probably because Jim Capaldi's version, which came out slightly after Nazareth, had already recently peaked on the charts there. And of course, there's a cover version by Cher, which has, well, you gotta hear it. Tell me those synths just scream 1991, right? It's really not awful, even if it is overproduced. Uh, but, but as far as I know, it wasn't released as a single. But you might not realize that the song goes all the way back to the early 1960s. Love 
Love Hurts was previously recorded by Roy Orbison, and it appeared on the B-side of his 1961 hit, Running Scared. Now, Running Scared was a big, big hit worldwide, worldwide. But the only place where Love Hurts got any airplay worth mentioning was in Australia, where the 45 was considered a double A-side record. And so both songs charted at number five over there. So that was the first hit version of the song. But wait, there's more. Let me turn back the clock. Love Hurts was written by a songwriter named Boodlow Bryant, who typically teamed up with his wife, Felice, to write songs, many of which wound up being recorded by the Everly Brothers. And while this was a solo effort on Boodlow's part, it too was picked up by the Everlys and recorded for their 1960 album, A Date with the Everly Brothers. However, it was never released as a single. But it was the Everlys who had it first, 15 years before Nazareth turned it into an international hit. And and incidentally, um, Nazareth's version is the only one which has the line, love is like a flame, it burns you when it's hot. All the other versions make a little bit more sense. Love is like a stove, it burns you when it's hot. Tide is High was released in 2002 by girl group Atomic Kitten. And while it's pretty bad, it did sell over a million copies worldwide and it made it to number one in the UK, which is the last time that Atomic Kitten saw the top slot anywhere. But everyone knew when that song came out that it was a cover of this record. The Tide is High was the first single from Blondie's 1980 album, Auto-American, and it became the band's third number one song in the United States. Incidentally, it was their last number one song in the UK for 19 years until Maria was released in early 1999. So who knows? You know, maybe in a couple of years, Atomic Kitten has a chance, right? I've always liked the reggae feel to this song, especially given the creative overlay of the horns throughout the song and the strings that appear here and there, but they gain a little bit more prominence in the bridge. And and incidentally, this is one of the weirder videos of the MTV era. It includes the band waiting for Debbie Harry outside a high-rise building while her apartment starts to flood, all the while being observed from outer space by an alien who appears to be Darth Vader, but who turns out not to be when you realize... Well, you got you can see the band finally reunites. Then they finally then they drive out to a rocket launch. They get in the rocket. They take off. They meet up with the alien, and Debbie Harry starts dancing with the alien. It's a bunch of typical nonsensical fun. And and I'm sure you know by now, Blondie did not have it first.
About two years earlier, Gregory Isaacs released this recording on his own label called African Museum, but it was also released as a 12-inch single in Jamaica on a label called Frontline, which contained an extra DJ mix by an artist named Yu Roy. Okay, I want you to remember that. Now, Deborah Harry has always been on the bleeding edge of trends in music, so there is little doubt in my mind that she heard this track and she decided to cover the song. Isaac's influence is clearly stamped on the Blondie version, but, but, Gregory Isaacs didn't have it first either. The song was originally written and released in 1966 by a group called the Paragons, with the song's writer, John Holt, singing lead. It didn't really do a lot until 1971, when Uroy, remember Uroy? He's in this part of the story, too. Anyway, Uroy did a DJ mix of the Paragons version, and the record got some traction in Jamaica and the UK. So, Uroy is responsible for the song catching on twice with two different artists, but the song appears to be responsible for ending the UK career of two other artists. How's that for weird karma? Okay, then let's pick up the tempo before we finish out. Tony Basil was a well-established dancer and choreographer when she recorded Mickey in 1980, but it didn't get released until 1982, and at that point it absolutely raced up the charts, took over the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 in December of that year. Tony Basil is considered to be a one-hit wonder, but she did have a couple of other charting singles, and I'm going to leave it to you and your skills with Google to find out what those were. But while Basil added that Oh Mickey, You're So Fine chant to the song, she was not the first to record it. However, there's a little bit of a difference here. Now, if you go back to the first time I did one of these cover shows, I talked about Girls Just Want to Have Fun, where Cindy Lauper did a little bit of a gender bend with the song, and she changed the intent of the lyrics by making a few minor changes. Well, Basil did a similar kind of thing by gender changing the entire song. The song goes back just a couple of years to 1979 and was originally recorded by a band called Racy, which included the song on their debut album. a little tough to understand, but he's seeing Kitty, okay, like a baby cat. Um, so the song was called Kitty. Racy had a little bit of success as a band in the UK, Australia, Ireland, and South Africa, but it didn't last long, and they broke up in 1985, although since then, there have been two concurrent revivals of the group, each featuring at least one of the original members. 
contented with homes that are rented, so I have invented my own. Darling, this place is a lover's oasis where life's weary chase is unknown. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you what Babe Ruth has in common with this song, Tea for Two. Well, if it weren't for that song, it's possible that the Boston Red Sox would never have sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. See, back in 1919, the owner of the Red Sox was a man named Harry Frazee, and I, already I can hear boos coming from the Boston area. Now, Harry's real passion wasn't baseball or the city of Boston, but rather in producing theatrical shows in New York City. In fact, Frazee is once quoted as saying that the best part about Boston is the train ride back to New York. And in 1919, Frizee was pretty deep in debt, so he sold off his star player, one George Herman Ruth, to the Yankees for $100,000. But as part of the deal, Frizee also got a $300,000 loan from the Babe's new team. Frizee used some of that money to finance a play titled My Lady Friends, which opened around the same time the trade took place. Now, My Lady Friends wasn't a huge success, but it was successful enough that he invested a little more of the money to turn the show into a musical. That musical, which opened in 1925, was the smash hit No No Nanette, which featured this song, T for Two. And that was the start of about 80 years of the Red Sox not winning the World Series. Even today, Frizzy is considered a villain around Fenway Park. By the way, if the if the voice you're hearing sounds familiar, her name is Blossom Deary. Okay, she was a, she was a torch singer in the uh, uh, 40s and 50s, but she's also known for recording some of these songs. Got home from camping last spring. Saw people, places, and things. We barely had arrived. Friends ask us to describe the people, places. That's it. Blossom Deary recorded three songs, I believe, for the Schoolhouse Rock series. And that is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. That'd be swell, wouldn't it? If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And by the way, I'm still getting responses from the listener survey, which is great. I was going to close it, but I'm going to leave it open for a little while longer because I actually did get a couple yesterday and the day before. And, and and thank you so much for your comments and, and your suggestions. And speaking of which, next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we take a look at yet another song that's a cover. But you probably didn't know that. And this song was requested by two different listeners from the surveys. And that's all I'm going to say at this point. I'm not going to spoil it. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you next time. <laughs>